Chapter eighteen of Julia Reed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Julia Reed by Pansy. Chapter eighteen. In which the blind led the blind. The day on which I journeyed back to Newton was one of those rainy, sleety, unutterably dreary days of late winter. I shuddered as I looked gloomily out on the black and dreary objects past which we whirled. Life seemed to me utterly purposeless and hopeless. I had not rallied from my sorrow, as girls of sixteen are wont to do. I think there was too much regret and remorse mingled with my weeping to let my tears be easily stayed. I had steadily resisted Dr. Van Anden's earnest offers of a home and Sadie's pleading. I was going back to Newton. I had begun to earn my own living. I had meant some day to earn not only mine, but mother's. All that was past, but I was not in a mood to give up my work. Indeed, I needed it to keep me from sinking in utter gloom. Those days of idleness and nights of bitter, unavailing weeping, spent alone in mother's room, well nigh drove me distracted. I think they all saw this at last and yielded to my fierce wish to get to work. My employers had been very kind, as kindness goes. The senior partner, Mr. Sales, had written me a letter full of well-meaning set phrases. He had reminded me that sorrow was the common lot of all, and that I must expect to be tried in the furnace of affliction, that in the midst of life we are in death, and that I had one more reminder that time was short, closing with the statement that two weeks were the utmost limit of their indulgence to me. They should like to do better, especially in this time of trial, but business cares were very pressing, and they needed all hands at their posts. I tore the letter into bits and burned it. Not that I considered it a bad letter in its way, not that I was ungrateful to them for their kindness in sparing me for two weeks. I knew they were busy and needed me. But it cut me so to see the cold hard fact set down in so many words that mother was dead. Everybody knew it and realized it. I need expect no one to say to me, Perhaps you are mistaken, perhaps she is not dead after all, or perhaps you will hear from her tomorrow. Never such words any more. My mother was dead and buried. Everybody accepted the hard unyielding fact, and yet everybody went on about their work, and I must go about mine just as usual. The books must be kept, and everywhere things would be just as they had been, except that my Saturday evening letter would never come again. Oh, that awful exception! I shivered and drew my waterproof closer about me as I stepped from the cars at Newton. The air seemed thick and heavy, and yet was keen and pierced me through. I expected no one to meet me. I had not written to announce my arrival. It suited my mood best to go in sullen loneliness to my boarding place. But my feet had no sooner touched the ground than I felt my hand drawn through a firm, strong arm, and in a moment more I was seated in a close carriage. I silently gave my check when it was demanded, and leaned back in the carriage with a little touch of softened feeling over the fact that I had still a friend. How did you know I was coming tonight? I asked, as Dr. Douglas, having attended to my baggage, seated himself beside me. Alfred telegraphed me this morning, according to my directions, he said quietly, as if it were a matter of course. Mrs. Tyndall's reception of me was the very perfection of kindness, tender, gentle, sympathetic, and yet not officious. But she jarred upon me. I felt in my heart bitter toward her. I blamed her for all my shortcomings and heart-wanderings. 
More than all, I blamed her for that last evening of giddy pleasure. But for her, I said to myself, in what gloom and desolation only my own heart knew, but for her I should have seen my mother again. I should have heard her speak one more word, for I would not have gone that evening if she would have given up. And then there would come such a rush of hard, rebellious longings into my soul, and I would feel almost as if I hated her. Oh, those heavy days! I began to pray again regularly, morning and evening, as I had been wont to do, for I did not openly rebel. But there was no comfort in my praying, no sense of nearness to my Saviour. A great gloomy wall seemed built up between Christ and my weary heart, and I could not get to him. At least I thought I couldn't. In the shop I worked steadily and silently. The girls were kind, Frank Hooper spoke to me in softened tones, Caroline Brighton left me entirely out of her practical jokes, and little Ruth Walker kissed me softly and silently, night and morning. And so I dragged my unwilling soul through the dreadful days, and sometimes it seemed to me that I should die. Sometimes I wished and longed for death. Often and often I fiercely longed for a sharp, protracted, prostrating illness, one that would bring delirium or unconsciousness to me. Many a time since then I have wondered at the goodness of my father in not answering in all their bitter meaning my wild, unspoken prayers. It was not a natural condition of mind for one so young as I. It was not a simple, submissive sorrow. But my life for months had not been a healthy life, either spiritually or morally, and the reaction was marked and lasting. Dr. Douglas pushed to the door that separated the dining room from the library, and lingered beside me in the latter place one evening before the others came in. Julia, he said gently, will you not go out with me to the meeting this evening? No, I said, with a sudden rush of tears. I recalled vividly how I had said to him that I would go to church every evening after the festival, that there would be nothing in the world to hinder, and truly there was not, there need be no letters written to mother now. I don't want to go, I continued. I don't want to do anything, nor see anybody. Will she like that, do you think? he asked me in low, sad tones. I checked my tears in wonderment and questioned, Who? Your mother. Do you imagine that she has lost all interest in you because she has gone to another home, especially when she is looking forward to the time when you will come to be with her there? Do you think she is pleased with your utter abandonment of yourself to your sorrow, as if you had lost her forever? There seemed a newness and strangeness in these ideas. Will she like that, do you think? He had said, not that dreadful. Would she have liked it if? That was always like the sharp pointed needles pushed into me. But this, will she, not as though I had lost my mother, not that she had dropped out of life and left a blank. It flashed across me like a new idea. My mother is living. She does not live in New Haven now. She has moved, and the city to which she has moved is wonderful and beautiful, and she expects me to come and live with her. The sensation was new, and it thrilled me. She cared for me still. If she was living, she had not ceased to love me. I smiled at the thought. I looked up gratefully at Dr. Douglas. I did not think of her as really living in heaven, I said. Indeed, heaven seemed to me to be nowhere. It seemed to me that she must be in the grave. I saw her laid there, her very face, and the cloud swept over me again at the remembrance of that open grave, and I finished my sentence with choking tears. 
Dr. Douglas's next sentence hushed and awed me, and flushed my face with eager wonder and wild anxiety. I have a message for you from her, he said quietly, and he drew from his pocket a small sealed package and gave it to me. I don't know anything of the contents, he added. The package was entrusted to me to give to you when I thought you could endure it. I think you need it now. I seized upon it in nervous haste and hurried away with it to my room. The address was in Sadie's handwriting, and within, on a slip of paper that was folded carefully around the sheet, she had written a few lines. My dear sister, only a few weeks ago I was talking with our mother about Esther's letter to me, read by me long after she was safe in heaven. I told mother about what an influence I thought it had exerted over my life since then, how much I prized it, and then I let her read it. I had never brought myself to do so before, but I thought mother would like to know about it. She seemed very much interested and deeply moved, and the next evening she entrusted the enclosed note to my keeping. You will see how it is addressed, she said. If I should be called first, you may give it to her. Oh, Julia, I remember with what a great throb of pain I took it from her, hoping and praying in my selfish heart that some other hand than mine might give it to you, that when mother went away I might be there in heaven to welcome her, not that I wanted to leave my husband and my home, but I wanted to cling to mother. It was but a few days afterward that God called her, and now, my darling, I send this letter to you. I hope it will not make your pain deeper. I trust that it will come to be a help and a comfort to you. Then I took up with reverend hand the enclosed sheet, and read in that dear handwriting that was so familiar to me those loving words, To be given to my dear daughter Julia when her mother is at rest. That sentence brought a burst of tears, and it was some little time before I was quiet enough to open the letter and read. My precious child, so it commenced when at last my tear-dimmed eyes could decipher the words, Mother isn't going to make you sad over this letter. I do not want you to be that. I write it rather that it may come to you in your sorrow and help you to be strong and brave. When you read it, darling, think of where I am, in heaven, your father and Esther and I, waiting there for the rest of the children. It is not to be a long letter. It is only to say God bless you and keep you near to him. Remember, my child, that mother's great longing, her absorbing desire for you, is that you shall keep close to Jesus. The older I grow and the nearer I come to the end, the more I realize that for us who are his children there should be one absorbing prayer. Nearer my God to thee, nearer to thee, even though it be a cross that raiseth me. Now, my darling child, good-bye. I give you a mother's blessing to follow you all your life. May it be a long, good life, such an one as we, waiting for you up there, will love to look at. I hope it will be a cheerful life, that great trial or pain may not be necessary for you. But remember, above all other things, I hope and pray that it may be a life of single-hearted consecration to Christ. My darling, good-bye. God bless you and keep you, Mother. I sat still, very still, and held this sacred letter in my hands. My tears were dried. I did not feel like shedding any more. I felt awed and solemnized. It almost seemed to me that I had heard a voice speaking to me from heaven. I had never hoped for another letter from my mother. I had mourned, oh, so bitterly, that she could not have said to me good-bye. Now here it was, the good-bye, the blessing, the earnest parting words. 
there was no hint as to what my life had been of late. I was thankful that my mother had been spared the grief of knowing. Even though it be a cross that raiseth me. I had not prayed that prayer, but perhaps mother had for me. The cross had fallen upon me bitter and heavy to be borne. Would it raise me to him? It shall, I said, aloud and solemnly. I will live a different life. O oh, mother, your prayer shall be answered. I will hide my life in Christ. I prayed that night, prayed long and earnestly, but there was no rest in the prayer, no comfort, no light. The words as I spoke them seemed to sound dully back against my own heart. Still, I was in a measure satisfied. I felt that my cold-heartedness was the reaction from incessant grief. I made many resolutions. I would begin to live now in earnest. I told myself I would be strong and brave, as mother had wished. I would make myself what I knew would please her. There was work for me to do in every direction. I would not shrink from or shirk it any more. As I look back tonight on the resolves and the prayers of that evening, I both smile and sigh, smile at my ignorance, and sigh that it was possible to have been so ignorant. I who had been a Christian for more than six years. How wonderful it is that Christ submits to our being named after him while we are living such miserable, dwarfed, sickly lives. I seem to imagine that I had but to signify my willingness to retrace my steps and take up my dropped and neglected duties lying about me on every side, when at once the full blaze of light and love and peace would burst upon me. I went to work at once among the girls in the shop, and I worked very much as I prayed, with many laborious, earnest-sounding words, that seemed to sound hollow and bound back at me from every point. Frank, I said, in earnest and disapproving tones, when we were alone in the storeroom for a few minutes, why don't you attend the meetings? I should think you might show so much interest at least. Frank bestowed a searching look on me, and then answered solemnly, Because I am a reprobate, there is no mistaking that fact. I really don't believe there is any hope for me. Suppose you try Carrie Brighton. I shouldn't wonder if you'd find her in a softened state of mind. I'm a sad instance of total depravity. There have to be some standing proofs to a doctrine, living witnesses, you know, and I'm one of them. I wouldn't trifle about anything so solemn, I said severely. Solemn is what? Total depravity? It is a solemn truth. I'm convinced of that. I don't trifle with it. It trifles with me. Lies in wait to deceive me at every point. She whisked off at the conclusion of this sentence, and left me wondering whether indeed her gaily spoken words were not true, and herself a hopeless reprobate and not a shadow of doubt as to whether I had spoken the right words to her in the right manner, for one moment entered my mind. I made one more effort during that day. I asked Caroline Brighton if she didn't think it would be a good idea for her to go to the meeting that evening. She answered me with grave thoughtfulness. I don't know. What time do they close? What time was it last night and the night before? I don't know, I answered confusedly. I wasn't there. Oh! Well, if I thought it would be out by eight, I might go. But you see, I am going to the circus at eight, and if they shouldn't close in time, it might be awkward. There was a chorus of laughter from the girls who had heard her loud replies, and guessed at my low-spoken questions. How religious that girl is getting, I overheard one of the girls say as I passed out of sight, but not out of sound. And Caroline answered, It isn't religion, poor child, but she thinks it is. Her mother is dead, and she feels dismal, 
and has mistaken the symptoms. I feel as patient as Job toward her. And this is all my profession of religion was worth in that shop. Yet I was in earnest. I honestly grieved over my failures, only there was this one difficulty. I never imagined them to be my failures. I was being led by my own blind self, and mistaking it for the leadings of the Spirit of God. End of chapter 18 Recording by Tricia G.